tonight on this edition of the Milt Rosenberg Podcast, and it is he who is speaking. We are joined once again by uh, two friends who were with us quite recently, Martin Kramer and Charles Lipson. Charles Lipson, colleague at the University of Chicago, where he is a leading political scientist, not merely at the University of Chicago, but in the country and the world. And Martin Kramer, a leading a student of Middle Eastern affairs, uh, officially a PhD in history, more broadly a general, uh, uh, a general uh, wise person with regard to what has gone right and what has gone wrong and how it has all happened in 30 or 40 or 50 years of recent Middle Eastern history and up to the present moment. Uh, in the recent present moment, he has become the president of a new college, a liberal arts college based in Jerusalem called Shalem College. He was, of course, for many years a major figure at Tel Aviv University. And what was the name of that organization that you ran, which you had, uh, had and still has a very strong presence on the Internet? Um, you mean uh, the Moshe Dayan Center at Tel Aviv University? Yes, and the other one. The Jaffe Center? Was no, 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 no. I, I, um, I also ran something called Middle East Strategy at Harvard, which was very mm. prominent on the Internet for a couple yes, of years. Yes, that's the one I was thinking yes. of. Be all that as it may. Uh, I invite the two of you, both of you leading academics, to consider academic culture and the works and ways of contemporary academics, to begin with, with a focus on academics who focus in turn on the Middle East and the making of the execution of the alteration of policy. Uh, you did a book some years ago, uh, I speak to Martin Kramer, with a wonderful title, if I remember it correctly, uh, Ivory Towers in the Sand. Is that right? Ivory Towers on Sand, yeah. And the, those ivory towers were Middle East study centers. Yes, they were. That book actually appeared six weeks after 9-11. So it had many more readers than I had anticipated. Yeah. I thought yeah. I was writing it for the academics themselves. It turned out that it had a much broader readership. Wonderful book. And Wonderful. the basic Thank argument you. of that book is that many of the Middle East study centers, the ones that you focus upon, have misled the politicians, have misled the men of power to misunderstanding what the Middle East is all about. Uh, that was, and the theory related not only to um, the whole question of the um, depth of Islamist extremism and its propensity to generate terrorism like 9-11, but also the overwhelming um, approach to civil society, its the prospects of democratization. These are all areas in which I think um, Middle Eastern studies had misled, and they misled for a reason. People believe what they want to believe, and um, they had a— in Middle East, Middle East scholars had a certain propensity to see the Middle East in certain ways. That's what had drawn them in initially to the field. Um, and uh, it was a case of wishful thinking. And wishful thinking, which produced uh, dubious analysis and uh, false projections and ultimately policy failures. I would, I would draw the contrast to the African studies centers, which grew up at about the same time, right? These regional studies centers. Uh, grew up all around uh, the country. They were funded by the United States government. It was all part of this giant funding of universities that went on in the aftermath of of, of Sputnik and the challenges. We needed to have people who spoke native languages, knew these cultures, that sort of thing. What happened in the case of the African studies was that these were states that had decolonized, 
there was real hope. A lot of people moved in to study them. And when the countries all became kleptocracies, dictatorships ruled by people who were basically there to steal along with their friends, and they degenerated into chaos, basically the field disintegrated. People just moved out of it, and they didn't study much of it. But they did not become apologists for that for those regimes. What happened in the Middle East studies and I'm speaking here as an outsider, Martin saw it from the inside, was that what you had was were a group of liberal, in the best sense, scholars, people who believed in debate, looked at a variety of issues, and welcomed different viewpoints. Maybe I'm idealizing it. But they invited in a group of people from the region. That is, they were Arab scholars, Uh, mostly Muslim, who uh, came in with a certain viewpoint. And there was a ratchet effect. The people who invited them in, uh, they would never have reciprocated. And they turned the field into a kind of cesspool of ideology. And like so many of these academic backwaters, it passed unnoticed by the larger public until the issue became prominent. When it did, they lifted up the rock and saw what was really underneath it. Well, what was the state of affairs at the Middle East Study Center, where I know you spent at least one visit a year, or was it two in uh, separate years, uh, at the University of Chicago, Martin Kramer? Uh, Well, this is going back some years, almost 25 years ago. I Mm -hmm. was twice a visiting professor at the University of Chicago, very Distinguished faculty, many accomplished uh, scholars, um, but there, as in other places, and I don't want to focus on University of Chicago in particular, but there, as in other places, you had the creeping politicization of Middle Eastern studies along the lines that Charles had indicated. And I would just emphasize a point that Charles had made, and which you could see also at the University of Chicago. The, the, um, the rise of this politicized scholarship did coincide with the emergence of, I'd say, uh, not scholars brought from the Middle East, but Arab-American scholars who saw, who were looking for, let us say, the equivalent of affirmative action to propel them to positions of influence in the Underline academy. that. You said Arab-Americans. Who were scholars. looking, yes, Arab-Americans. One, a prominent one, uh, he became prominent in time at the University of Chicago, was Rashid Khalili. He was indeed. And, um, who was American-born. He was American-born, Brooklyn-born. And, um, but conceives of himself as a Palestinian. Yeah, right. Good. Well, but th- there were many. There were many cases of, this, of these these people who were interested in in pursuing academic careers. And you know, we America is a grievance culture. I hate to say it. A grievance. A culture. grievance culture. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you have a grievance, this gives you preferential standing. And um, and, and that's what the university centers like. Uh, Hispanic studies, Native American studies, they're all gender studies. They're all uh, sort of epicenters of grievance politics. Well, the personnel at the American uh, University Middle East Study Centers was then largely American-born of Arab descent or else an occasional Jew. Yes. And, and what, and, and, As you were. At, and, and the process which took place was the transformation of Middle Eastern studies from area studies. Yeah which had been, say, policy-driven, interest-driven, and supported by the United States government into a branch of ethnic studies. And ethnic studies tend to be grievance-based in, 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 in some respect. Uh, and um, it was Edward Said in his book Orientalism who basically said that no Westerner 
could study or represent the Middle East without the legacy of imperialism manifesting itself in the way in which he studied or represented it. Who was free of the legacy of imperialism? He who came, he or she who came from the region, who had roots in the region. And so they... He, Edward Said. He, Edward Said. So basically they were... Um, that book was, an, a manifest, it was a manifesto for affirmative action for Arab Americans in the academy in the field of Middle Eastern studies. Do a little sidebar on his theory of, quote, Orientalism. Well, his theory of Orientalism uh, was that um, it represented basically the equivalent of anti-Semitism directed against Muslims and Arabs. In other words, it was a profound and deep prejudice. Now, we know Orientalism is meaning many things. It meant a branch of scholarship. It meant a branch of, um, of art. Um, what you had was a re-semanticization of the word Orientalism to mean a kind of racism directed against primarily Arabs and Muslims. And so if you were an Orientalist, you were called an Orientalist, although you may have seen yourself in an earlier generation as bearing that title proudly as a, as, as a scholar of the, of the East. Um, it was, that term was transformed into an accusation of racism. If you were an Orientalist, it was equivalent of calling someone a racist or an anti-Semite, only in this case directed against Arabs and Muslims. That's Not the unlike the accusation you get sometimes from certain black intellectuals who say no white person can speak authoritatively and with real knowledge about the black experience. That's right. And remember that the whole development of the field of Islamic studies had been in its scholarly form, had taken place in the West in the 19th century. By the way, Jews had played a prominent role in it as well, but others too, missionaries and, 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 and scholars in German universities, French universities, and British universities. So this was an attempt to say, ah, all of that was prejudiced. Not only was it not a, was it not a part of the Enlightenment, but it was a continuation of the medieval anti-Islamic polemic. So, and if you dug deep enough in those scholarly works of the Westerners, you would find prejudice. So imagine Therefore, only we can represent our religion, our faith. Charles Lipson. So imagine that you're a British scholar who studies the United States, and you call yourself an Americanist. And you say that kind of proudly. You go to conventions, I'm an Americanist. It, remind me, it reminds me there used to be a time when lots of people in certain departments and universities called themselves Sovietologists. Exactly. Now comes in Bill Ayers as a professor uh, in your university, let's call it Oxford, and said all of you people who call yourself Americanists are simply people who put down America and you can't study America, it's only me who can study it. And I, I choose Bill Ayers quite directly. These were not just people from the region, but people with a particular view and a highly politicized view of the region. What they did by that uh, twist of terms was, in effect, delegitimate all existing scholars and scholarship of the region by people who were deeply learned and, uh, and actually loved uh, the region and loved writing about it. And what this did was this provided a pathway to the politicization of the region. Have I gotten that basically right, Mark? You've got it basically right. And I would just say, though, that it's not something that they invented. This politicization of the academy was taking place in other areas and other fields. So this was really its application to the Middle Eastern context. Taking place in other areas and other fields. Like beyond, race studies and gender social, studies. Beyond the social disciplines? Did it show up, for example, in the humanities? 
Oh, I think very much so. Um, the uh, um, the trend that began already in the 60s in the academy came late to Middle Eastern and other area studies, but eventually it reached them as well. The idea that, in fact, what was called area studies were just the studies in the imperial interest. Why was the government, why was the U.S. government funding these centers? Why was it funding these studies? Obviously, in order to gain some benefit uh, at the expense of the peoples in the region. And so what began in the Vietnam context eventually spread to all area studies. And the Scarlet A stands for anthropology mm-hmm. because anthropology really did in its earliest phases go hand in hand with the British imperial adventure. Now, many of the people in who, England, in, in England, the, in the United States, it went hand in hand with the American left. Right. But what happened, uh, what you could see happening in the humanities was the move away from what the humanities classically did. Let's take uh, English or Romance languages, the study of the Latin-derived languages. Uh, You would study Shakespeare. It would be a requirement for an undergraduate that you take courses in Shakespeare. You could assume any undergraduate had read Jane Austen if if she was an English major, that sort of thing. Samuel Johnson, uh, know who John Milton was, moved away from all of that and left-wing books on imperialism, literally with titles like imperialism, and basically shoddy political analysis began to be published out of places like Duke. In often, that. often demonstrating that authors like even Jane Austen and William Shakespeare uh, served imperialism in, through their work. Well, that's right. And you could, the, the early work would show, oh, they were drinking tea and tea came from India and it had sugar and that came from Jamaica and there was exploitation through all of this. But it quickly moved beyond that. Uh, to be a kind of left-wing study of politics and how the West was so deeply implicated and uh, in everything that had gone wrong in the world, and it became post-colonial studies. When I broke into academic life and had my first academic job at Yale, uh, a book that was au courant and was being read by in just about every department for with one justification or another was Franz Fanon. Yes. And I think that Franz Fanon, the wretched of the earth, is the touchstone book for a lot of this. Indeed, I think, uh, and this would be a a speculative and controversial, I think it's a kind of touchstone book for somebody like uh, President Obama. Explain what was in that book. Martin, why don't you... Uh, take on what Fanon says. Well, I I think Fanon's uh, basic thesis is that um, um, imperial rule or colonial rule uh, creates a situation in which the subject of that rule acts violently, is justified in doing so, transforms the consciousness of the colonized into a, a legitimate um, a, a legitimation of counterviolence, which with which he fully identified. So In it's other a words, short step to terrorism, right? And it's uh, 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 but the key point here is that all action by empire has blowback, and that's what a, a, someone like Obama might have taken away from reading Franz Fanon. That any act 
of, um, um, of any exercise of power is likely to bring about the exercise of counter-violence, which will be justified. And no matter how benign the, the empire is, as the United States right. certainly conceived of itself, they are not really so benign. I do like that Weaver title of 50 years ago, Ideas Have Consequences. Stay with the case of Barack Obama for a moment, if you will. Uh, in addition to possibly having read Franz Fanon, what other uh, intellectual sources might have shaped the worldview presently being uh, acted upon by its possessor, namely Barack Obama. Well, I think that the revisionist literature on the Vietnam War, for example, was very important. And I think there were some elements of the revisionist literature that were uh, quite right. So the, the revisionist literature... Uh, uh, written in the during the experience of Vietnam, dealt with a whole variety of issues around the world. But let's just take post-war Europe, the Marshall Plan, and so forth. The Marshall Plan and NATO were all at that time conceived of in the academy as a response to Soviet expansion. The most intelligent point made by the revisionists was that the United States had affirmative goals in reaching out to Europe and in reordering it. And that was to integrate them into a certain kind of American-led world order. And that was a positive uh, goal, not positive in the normative sense, but a positive uh, uh, goal in the sense that it's something we wanted to do. I think that's accurate. We weren't simply responding. But uh, most of the left then went beyond that and said it was a bad thing that we were doing fundamentally, and it led to overreach, uh, which it sometimes did, uh, so that you were fighting uh, against falling dominoes in Southeast Asia. But then they said, it's not just that it was a bad thing that we were fighting there, it would be good if Ho Chi Minh won. And it would be good if these liberation movements didn't just liberate their countries uh, in Africa and in South Asia uh, from imperial rule, but they were ruled by socialists and were anti-Western in what, tone. What books made that sort of argument? There were just a, a virtually all of the books on the left made uh, those arguments. They were profoundly critical uh, of the American uh, role in the in the world. And I think when President Obama made his inaugural tour of the Middle East, leading off with his Cairo speech, it was suffused with the notion that we weren't simply overstretched financially. And we needed to pull back, we meaning the U.S., needed to pull back for that reason. But that we'd done a lot of bad things in the world. He emphasized that. That's what he was apologizing around the region for. And that the world would be better off if the United States had a far lesser footprint. And I think some of the problems that you see uh, around the world are that when you implement that, not just because we're overstretched financially, but because we're uh, uh, not a positive force in the world, we then withdraw, you see that uh, quite bad things can often happen in our absence. What you've just said has stirred a pang of possible guilt in me. Uh, 
in the last year or so of the war, Sid Verba and I did a book titled Vietnam and the Silent Majority. Uh, the nature of what that book was is that is given by the fact that the preface was written by Senator George McGovern. Were you a nadering nabob of negativism? Uh, no, I, we were on the fringe of that sort of thing, I think. Uh, but uh, perhaps next time I get a chance to talk to Barack Obama, which I had when he was simply a Chicago native, uh, I must ask him if he ever But let me, let me respond to that because there, there was a widespread movement against the Vietnam War. I think very few people uh, now would defend it. There are some who say we could have done better if we'd used a different strategy. But the left then used it as a lever for a much broader critique of what they viewed of uh, viewed as American and Western imperialism as a malevolent force in the world. Yeah. Let me just uh, emphasize here that Barack Obama is not the Vietnam generation. He's younger than anyone at the table here. Mm -hmm. right. So he received that at second remove or third remove. Now, you mentioned Professor Khalidi at the University of Chicago. There, I think, when Barack Obama was at the University of Chicago, he received a primer about the Middle East at that point in and time. And they, they were well known as good friends. They were well known as good friends. I and Barack thanked him for exactly that at his going away party, yeah. a tape of which um, uh, was made and uh, and has been hidden and won't be released. Yeah. The LA Times has it. Now, I think that Barack Obama came away from his primer on the Middle East from Professor Holiday with two basic conclusions. One, that American use a force in the Middle East had always had unanticipated consequences, which were negative and therefore should be avoided. Um, Hence and, his policy in Iraq. And, and you can see that that argument is a book argument that Professor Khadi later made in a book called, I think, Resurrecting Empire. That is, the United States acted in the Middle East as an imperial power and its use of force had always had negative consequences for the United States itself, not to speak of for the peoples of the region. And second, that the core conflict in the Middle East was between Israel and the Palestinians. should be made clear that Rashid Khalidi, who was uh, once our colleague at the University of Chicago and ran that Middle East Studies Center, into then the became ground, the Edward ran Said, it into the ground. Then became the Edward Said professor at Columbia and took over the similar center at Columbia, Four where times. he presently is located. Um, and it, it's worth noting that the heads uh, of the center at Columbia, the outgoing head of the one at Chicago, and all around the country, a number of major figures at NYU and so forth, have all now signed a letter uh, urging uh, a boycott of dealing with any Israeli university so they wouldn't, they've said, oh, we just signed it in our personal capacity. But they're heads of these major U.S. government-funded institutions. They are saying it would be illegitimate for us to collaborate with people like Martin Kramer because not because of Martin's particular views. He could have any views he wants, but simply because Martin is part of this imperial apparatus of the Israeli state and is, a, is at an Israeli university. So that's what it's descended to. Yeah, I would, um, I would say when it comes to the state of Middle Eastern studies today, there's, there's good news and the bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is that the same people who began as students um, um, and then in graduate students and young faculty 
who had been radicalized or had radicalized um, others are now in these positions of leadership, as Charles indicated. They're heads of Middle East centers, um, and and uh, they're, they are effectively de facto implementing a boycott of Israel from positions of, of, of influence and power. On the other hand, over the past By the way, that's decade, happened not merely here. It happened earlier, did it not, in England? Yes, yes, it did. Oh, it's even more virulent yeah. there. Yeah. But, but uh, and here's something I noted, because I, although I'm based in Israel, I have... In the past decade, I've been a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins in Washington at the School of Advanced International Studies. I was spent three years on and off at Harvard. Is that what I see at the level of the students who are taking an interest in the Middle East is a completely different kind of student. Students who were drawn to this by 9-11, the Iraq War, by America's growing involvement in the region, and who don't share the Vietnam legacy uh, and were not necessarily also come from an ethnic grievance group. Uh, I remember being at Harvard at one point and a young man walked into my office with a giant tattoo on his arm and said, I w- he said, I wanted to consult with you. I said, well, how did you come here? He said, well, I'm a student in, for, I'm doing a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies here at Harvard. I said, well, you don't look like the typical uh, Middle East studies student doing a master's degree. He says, I was a Marine. And he said, then I worked for Blackwater, um, shuttling large amounts of cash from one part of Iraq to another, and I became interested in the Middle East. He's, I say, I suppose, an extreme case, but I, I have seen more and more students come to the Middle East precisely because they see it as an area in which the United States is going to be greatly involved, and they come to it from a more American perspective. So the bad news is that at the higher echelons, we have the final empowerment of an earlier generation of radicals. The good news is that on the student level, we see a much larger pool of people interested in the Middle East than we saw in the 70s and the 80s. All my career, I've been in psychology uh, and or in uh, uh, nighttime radio. Uh, but uh, I've had lots of friends in English departments and other such literary-oriented departments. It's a very comparable thing happens there. Even though deconstructionism and post-structuralism still obtains, and the older guys at least are still pushing mm-hmm. it, the students all have contempt for it. Right. And they show it in classroom. And they show it in uh, the work that they undertake and in the things they read. They've gone back to Shakespeare. But they've mostly voted with their feet in many of those fields. They've simply left them. That too. They came there to read great works in yeah. English and in French. And if they're going to be taught a kind of shoddy version of left-wing uh, social science, um, they would rather have a real social science education and major in economics or political science and sociology. Meanwhile, with regard to Middle Eastern studies, what happens in that, that other major national center of Middle Eastern studies, Israel? Um, well, Israel has a very um, developed uh, field of Middle Eastern studies. It flourishes in all of the universities. Uh, we ourselves are opening a department in Middle Eastern studies beginning this year. At Shalem we're under, for Shalem, Shalem College at the undergraduate level because there's tremendous demand for it. In Israel, studying the Middle East is nothing esoteric. It's the equivalent of a government or politics or history degree in the United States. And you but can, you have to learn Arabic. But That's you, ha- the you big have to barrier. learn Arabic. You have to learn Arabic. But people go on from that to government service, journalism. Um, um, there, there's a whole range of things that you can do with it. 
Um, now, in Israel, you also have some of these trends which have infiltrated from uh, from abroad. Um, they tend to be their practitioners tend to be concentrated in a few universities. Edward Said's book was translated into Hebrew and is assigned in some places. Um, I personally see our our own department as standing very much in the tradition of Bernard Lewis, who is Edward Said's What is rival. that tradition? Um, that tradition aspires to objectivity. Um, and it was something that uh, Bernard once said that sticks to my in, in my mind. A- at a time when many people turn turn their political activism and commitment into something tantamount to scholarship. Lewis would say about objectivity, quoting someone else, that um, just because one can't achieve total asepsis in the, in the um, operating room, one does not operate, perform surgery in a sewer. Um, and I think... <laughs> the, the, You're reminding me of... Milt will know who it was. Who was the uh, Hollywood producer who once said about making movies, if you want to send a message, send a telegram? <laughs> and uh, and there's a lot of scholarship where you uh, send an email, write a blog post. Don't write you know, a book yeah. like uh, Resurrecting Empire. Yeah. So Bernard adhered to the notion that... that even if one could not achieve total objectivity, one had to strive to do so. And one had to be able to see things from the perspective of the other. This was something actually that um, it was Lee Bollinger, of all people at Columbia, described as the scholarly temperament. In a lecture I attended at the time when Columbia was in the midst of one of these big controversies, he said, the scholarly temperament is defined by the ability, even for a moment, even for a moment, to see the uh, object of one's study from a completely different perspective. In activist scholarship, this is totally lost. It's lost not in publication, but in the classroom. And it's and, true across many disciplines. By the way, it's the Bobby Burns approach. Would that God, the gift would give us to see ourselves as others see us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sadly, this is true of the grievance industry in so many areas. Try to imagine uh, being opposed to gay marriage and getting an appointment in a gender study center anywhere in the country. It's just inconceivable. Try to imagine uh, not being a sort of left-wing activist and getting an appointment in any Native American studies center. They were filled with the Ward Churchill types, and Ward Churchill wasn't just... Uh, a fraud who depicted himself as a Native American when he was not and so forth. He literally wrote articles under the names of other people and then cited them, gave them to the other people, and then uh, praised himself in those articles and then cited them uh, in his own work. So there was all this kind of – there was all this kind of shoddiness. They were given, usually in the context of student protests – uh, okay, so the students are out there saying there are too few professors of type X with green hair. Okay, so let's set up a green hair studies department. And then the green hair studies department didn't aspire to what, uh, to what Martin Kramer uh, wanted or what Bernard Lewis wanted. Uh, it became an advocacy group. And I must say it's to the great credit 
of Jewish studies programs around the country, that they are not like that. And in fact, I insisted when people, I'm not in such a program, but when it was formed at the University of Chicago, that it not be like that. If Jewish kids need support, or uh, um, of course, many kids who study in them are not Jewish, they want to learn about the Hebrew Bible or whatever it is. But if you, uh, but of course, uh, Jewish kids who want to know more about their tradition come to it. But if they want support, uh, personal support or political support, they should go to to the campus organizations like Hillel, not to uh, an activated political group calling itself Jewish Studies. And unfortunately, that's exactly right. what's happened. That, that's that's a, a field of studies which becomes effectively a lobby. And uh, by the way, that's one of the reasons why many Arab governments invested in Middle Eastern studies in the United States. Absolutely. Because they saw they saw Middle Eastern studies effectively as the equivalent of a lobby. Instead of putting the money in Washington in some suite of offices on K Street, they put the money in the campus. And there and was they a do time it. where they did it quite openly. Yep. Yeah. When I first arrived at the University of Chicago, that was even before I think Charles arrived, uh, there was a considerable controversy. The Shah was still on the peacock throne uh, in Tehran. And... Uh, had given money for the establishment of a Pahlavi center for Middle Eastern studies or something of the mm-hmm. sort, or perhaps of Iranian studies. But those, those funders, but we, you know, have— The faculty ma- pro- protested against it, and that didn't happen. Was, Listen, I want to put— yeah. Time is short. We've been wandering rather loosely. Three professors uh, talking about— uh, <laughs> Walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah. And talk about the influence of— uh, various kinds of study centers and various kinds of intellectual disciplines upon the larger world and how they reflect the larger world and so on. Back to Israel for a moment and its intellectual life. I am rather uh, uh, still surprised that there are main trends of conflict or of division within Israeli intellectual life concerning Israel itself, concerning Zionism itself. It may not be the major movement, but there are essentially anti-Zionist, virtually anti-Israeli, Jewish-Israeli intellectuals, are there not? There are. It's not surprising. Any place where you have Jews, you have a multitude of uh, opinions. And anti-Zionism was always um, 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 championed by a number of Jews as well. But why go and, to Israel to champion it? Well, not all of them came by choice, yeah. or not all of their parents came by choice uh-huh. necessarily. And people form their own opinions in the course well, of time. Well, what's their line? Um, well, it's hard for me to represent their line since I don't uh, identify with it. But I imagine their line would be that um, uh, that the um, creation of the state of Israel was a surrender of Jewish universalism to Jewish particularism. Uh, the Jews had made their great contribution to civilization uh, as universalists, not as particularists, and just one more nation state adds nothing to the sum of humanity. I suppose that would be something along the lines that they would argue and that uh, on top of that, Israel had been created at the expense of others and so forth. There were many Jews in America who took that line at the formation of the state of Israel, opposed it for just the reason Martin said. Um, You might hear that from from an Orthodox person someplace in Meir Sharim. uh, (laughs) Conceivably, but there would be formulated different. In Meir Sharim, an Orthodox person would say, ah, uh, the Jews have usurped the role of God in bringing about the redemption which would be the creation of the Jewish state. Yeah. Uh, All the same, what is the current state of affairs in intellectual 
life in Israel? It's changed quite a bit. The, the trend that, you're in, that you've indicated was particularly prominent in the, um, in the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, the collapse of the Oslo process in the Second Intifada dealt a severe blow to these trends, these intellectual trends, and you've had a gradual movement in Israel, not just among the general populace, but also in intellectual circles towards what I would consider to be a more realistic appraisal of where Israel is in the Middle East and what realities we face. Uh, some of the post-Zionists, as they call themselves, along the lines of post-colonialists, left the country. Um, some had changes of heart. I'm thinking of Benny Morris, the historian, who um, uh, went from a position identified with post-Zionism to one identified with um, um, with um, taking a very rigid and um, an uncompromising view on the Palestinians, precisely because they themselves refuse under any condition to recognize Israel. Um, so um, uh, I would say that looking over um, the past 15 years, from an intellectual point of view, the left is in a defensive position. And um, whereas someone might have considered um, views that I hold at one point to have been center-right, I would say today that they pretty much represent the core of the center. And that's why Netanyahu gets reelected again and again and again. He's not seen in Israel as a rightist. There are people who are more off to the right than he is. He is considered in Israel to be um, the exemplar of the Israeli center. So let me let me connect this uh, to some of the American Academy. Um, in uh, uh, the the basic story is that uh, this relatively small number of virulently anti-Zionist professors in Israel are repeatedly invited uh, to uh, the anti-Zionist centers for Middle Eastern studies across the United States. So, um, to understand the effect that that has, imagine that there's a center for American studies uh, in France, and it is run by Bill Ayers, and he has money to invite Americans to talk about America, and he invites Ward Churchill and Bernadine Dorn and, you know, a variety of leftists. And that's much like what you have in many of these Middle East centers. So a figure like Elon Pape, who is a professor at uh, Ben-Gurion University, he's no longer at Ben-Gurion? He's, he's one who left. You'll find him now at uh, Exeter in England. Oh, at Exeter. So, yeah. oh, that's an interesting point. That's a, another interesting point. If these very left-wing professors, anti-Zionist professors, want to leave Israel, European universities, and especially those in England, open them with uh, uh, welcome them with open arms. So uh, at places like SOAS, the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies as part of the University of London, if you were a pro-Zionist, you could not get an appointment there. I mean, these, these are virulently anti-Zionist. So there is a connection between this kind of small group within Israel, which has free debate. And if you're a tenured professor, you're tenured there. You can say anything you want. Uh, and American universities, uh, guys like Rashid Khalidi couldn't invite these people uh, often enough. And, what and, we and, have it's because, and it's because, by the way, that um, people like Elon Papi and others have left Israeli academia or been marginalized in Israeli academia, that their supporters in this country 
can say about Israeli universities that they are complicit in the occupation and therefore call for the boycott. It's precisely because but he the, wasn't forced out. I mean, he wasn't told you have to no, leave. No, he forced himself out. But the atmosphere has become less congenial to these people in Israeli academia. I think we, that's to the credit of the Israeli universities. Have we in this discussion, which comes necessarily to a close in a moment, have we established that uh, academic disciplines are as subject to political influence and political undermining uh, and political coloration as just about any other intellectual uh, use of human capability? Well, um, there are different academic fields. I think that if you're on the STEM side of campus... If you're uh, in chemistry, it's right. pretty hard to politicize, it's, it's, is it? It's probably not impossible, but I think it's less likely. Yeah. And we see a real, a real division of culture in most yeah. campuses as between the two sides of the campuses. But I think politicization of um, the humanities and social sciences can become rampant if, if a university administration uh, is inattentive to what happens. And here I think um, we've had a few lately... Uh, great debate over the question of shared governance in universities. Um, any, any enterprise which is totally self-regulating can go off the track. We know that. We know that in a host of, of fields outside academia as well. With that, we come necessarily to an end uh, of the conversation because available time has elapsed. My guests have been, once again, Martin Kramer, these days president of Shalem College in Jerusalem, Charles Lipson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago.